National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas, Big Data for Law, presented by John Sheridan. This talk was recorded on the 7th of July, 2014, at the National Archives, Kew. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Sheridan. I'm the Head of Legislation Services here, and um, welcome to this talk about big data for law in the series of big ideas. Anyway, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, legislation and big data and those sorts of things. So there are sometimes I do these, I, I do quite a lot of talks and um, it's in a way it's quite indulgent. Um, if I draw a Venn diagram of my areas of interest, I usually end up with a kind of um, exclusive um, intersection of people who are interested in legislation, um, information technology and particularly data, and the music of J.S. Bach, and I put me right in the middle. And it's all I can manage to um, not slip in bits and pieces of um, kinds of other things that I'm interested in, not to so much entertain you, but as to keep me interested in, um, in what I'm saying, which is... Um, uh, I suspect that's one of the things you don't see when you do the How to Present training course. Anyway, depending on who you are in the organisation, um, you may have a mental model for the statute book that looks like this. So the National Archives has long been a home for um, a thing called the Chancery Role. And one of my most... Ex- one, of, one of the really terrific things to do um, is when we have visitors here... If you're in the legislation services team, and you can um, give people the opportunity to see um, legislation as it was made. So you can see the Act of Settlement, or you can see the Act of Union from 1706, and you realise that there is um, quite a deep relationship between the form of the content and its function. Um, And this is one of the um, really important changes that we're going through at the moment with what's happening to primary sources of law. Anyhow, um, the National Archives, alongside being the home for the Chancery role and one of the two vellum copies of each Act of Parliament that is produced, is also the home to the Legislation Services team. And that gives us a very particular insight. Now, it's quite fun from the perspective of looking back at um, our nation's history and partly from the perspective of looking back at um, our history in terms of literature to see how things that have been topical at one point in time or other in the country have also been topical for Parliament to legislate on too. So you can go back to the 19th century um, and Charles Dickens is busily writing Oliver Twist. And Parliament, meanwhile is passing law relating to the poor. You can track forward to Virginia Woolf. Um, So we're now into the 20s. Actually, 1918, um, Parliament is looking at um, extending suffrage um, and widening the franchise. There was then this wonderful period of time in the 50s where people got very excited in mediums and... Um, talking to the dead beyond the grave. And Noel Coward beautifully satirises some of that in Blythe Spirit. 
And lo and behold, you have the Fraudulent Mediums Act of 1951, um, this being sufficiently important matter of public discourse for uh, Parliament of the day um, to legislate um, certain provisions for the punishment of persons who fraudulently purport to act as spiritualistic mediums or to exercise powers of telepathy, clairvoyance or other similar powers. One wonders how on earth you can claim to be a spiritualistic medium um, and for it not to be fraudulent. But anyway, that's, uh, that's by the by. Um, and right the way through to the 1980s, Martin Amis money and, oh, 1990s, Dangerous Dogs Act. Um, so there's always been this kind of connection between sets of things that have been happening in the country and sets of things that have been um, legislated on in Parliament. And our statute book, in some um, deep and important sense, reflects an enormous part of our nation's history. There's also this relationship between the form of legislation and its function. Now, we have, amongst many responsibilities, the responsibility for officially publishing new legislation. And it kind of looks like, um, you know, books, numbered paragraphs, um, subsection 1 and sections 475 to 476 apply, blah, blah, blah. And it's an important observation, the extent to which this manner of legislating is in no small part a function of... Um, the introduction of printed technology, um, and it just wouldn't have been possible to um, construct such an interwoven set of concepts and ideas um, without the introduction more recently of um, word processing technology. Um, Look at an act of 50 years ago and look at an act of five years ago and see the difference in terms of the numbers of cross-references um, and think to yourself, however could the legislation have been drafted the way it is today with so many cross-references, were it not for the fact that we have computers who can take care of matching all of the references? Um, so there's a real relationship between tools, function and form. Um, now, we have the great pleasure of running a service called legislation.gov.uk, and I won't say too much about it um, other than it's um, something that occupies the minds and work and life of many of the people in this room. Um, But in doing that, we tend to think of legislation not as simply numbered paragraphs, but we tend to necessarily think of it in terms of data. So it's common in my team to talk about um, not so much numbered paragraphs, but the data. It's all about the data. And we make the data that we have for UK legislation open and available. So... Legislation, part of our nation's history, a printed artefact, something that people access on the web, data. Um, What's its true nature? Well, some of it is about a change that we have seen over the last 30 years in terms of the role of sources of law and how consumers of legal services have interacted with them. And there was a world 30 years ago where um, access to sources of law was principally constrained to those people who could afford to buy the books. Um, And we played our part in that, helping to produce some of the books. Um, But if you had a legal problem, you would go to a lawyer, um, and the lawyers would consult the sources of law. 
we've moved to a much more rich and interesting place today. Um, for sure, consumers, um, so people like us, those of us who are not lawyers, um, still go and talk to lawyers when we have legal problems and, and lawyers consult sources of law. Um, these days, they more typically consult online electronic legal databases rather than consulting books. But there are some other big trends at work. Um, one is that consumers have an interest and an appetite to directly access sources of law for themselves. And these are the people that we see who work with and use legislation.gov.uk. And those people are mainly not lawyers. They're looking to comply with the law. Um, And in some sense, they're trying to resolve or solve their legal problem. And they expect to be able to go to Google and type the name of the Equality Act 2010 and to be able to find it. And they expect, um, if, for example, they're in some kind of dispute with their employer about whether or not sufficient modification has been made because they have a disability for them at work to be able to go about their work, um, to be able to read the relevant provisions in the Equality Act and to make some sense of it. Um, This audience is also enormous. Um, We see something like... Um, 2 million unique visitors a month to legislation.gov.uk. We will serve something like half a billion page views a year um, of legislation. Now, but that isn't the only thing that consumers are doing. They're also talking to each other about how they work with or how they understand law. And one of the things, if you um, happen to use Twitter, um, if you do a search on Twitter for legislation.gov.uk, you can see the conversations people are having about um, different parts of the statute book. And you can see the conversations that people are having about sources of law. And finally, there's um, the rise of new types of digital legal service, um, from services about making wills to services that buying or selling your house. Government, too, is busily involved in making new forms of digital legal service. From a certain point of view, you can view GovUK as being a a kind of digital legal service for transacting with government that sits on top of the statute book as a source of law. Now, a shift from the old world to the new world starts begging some really profound questions about what is it that we need our sources of law to do? How do they need to be constructed not just to be useful to lawyers who are providing a mediating layer, but explicable to consumers who are directly working with those sources of law and um, that can facilitate the rise of a variety of different types of digital legal service. So what are we then thinking about? We're thinking about sources of law being not just sets of numbered paragraphs in published, printed documents, or even websites, but sources of law being data? What does it mean to plug into the statute book if you're providing a digital legal service? Or maybe it means um, thinking about sources of law becoming increasingly themselves computer code. And we see some of that too in the last um, 18 months or so with... um, Departments like the Department for Work and Pensions passing the Universal Credit Regulations using a technology called Oracle Policy Automation, which um, is a kind of constrained form of natural language where the rules have been framed to be directly turned into machine processable rules. 
So when government's got a stake in the game, it says, ah, wouldn't it be great if we turn a bit of our source of law into computer code to underpin our digital legal service so that we can more efficiently process the three million immigration applications we see a year, or we can more effectively process um, claims for benefits and so on and so on. So this is a little bit of just to orientate you in the landscape. The web fundamentally changing who accesses sources of law. Our role in that at the National Archives um, in terms of legislation, Gov UK, um, but also having a sense for a, a much wider game that's afoot. That's like, I don't know, if it were an opera, Act One. Act Two, Big Data, um, which is kind of like buzzword bingo. And people talk a lot about big data. And um, uh, I don't know, how many of you are kind of like IT type people? Hello, brothers. I am too. I'm like an IT person whose career's gone horribly wrong. Um, uh, so, big data. Um, there's People talk about it being in terms of volume and velocity, so it's about very large amounts of information. Um, and basically, it's IT people sort of gradually catching up with where statisticians have been for quite a long time, which is you can develop an understanding about a thing by measuring it, by counting it, and by applying analytical methods to it. The difference between big data and what we have been doing for 150 years in statistics is many of the statistical methods were designed for an era where you couldn't process all of the available information about something, so you had to sample. And then how can you deduce from your sample whether the conclusions that you're arriving at stand up? With big data, the idea is that you can now process all of the information that you have, and therefore um, you have different types of method. Um, And it's become an area that research councils are very interested in. It's become an area that big business is pretty interested in. In fact, anyone who has quite a lot of data. Um, But it's also a terrible, terrible buzzword bingo name for essentially processing data. Um, What's the kind of things that people can do with big data? This is one of my favourite examples. This is um, uh, possibly a little creepy, actually. Um, It's a scientist in MIT who created a map of his house. And um, he has a toddler. um, And the map is frequency where the child is talking about water in terms of both context and location in the house. Um, But essentially it's this observation that, now this wouldn't have been possible to have gathered all of the information. Every utterance that this um, four-year-old makes is processed by the computer and then mapped against their location to get some sense of both context, frequency and location of the use of the word water. Um, Now, I mean, it's kind of interesting to see where a four-year-old uses the word water. What's much more interesting is that it's possible to do such a thing and imagine the potential if you took these types of capability and you applied it to a data set that really meant something. You applied it to something like the statute book that exists as, um, if you like, the operating system for our country. Now, some of you will have seen this diagram before. We know for absolutely sure that it makes sense to think of the statute book as a data resource. Um, This is a diagram that shows um, what in my team are called legislative effects. 
or amendments, if you like. So it's how one piece of legislation changes another. And it's a diagram that, that shows you how much of the statute book you would need to know about in order to know the current and enforced state of one particular act, which buried in the middle of that is the Company Audit Community Enterprise Act. So we know that it makes sense to think about and manage facets or aspects of the statute book as data, and we know that it can give um, some insights. We can also see um, that the statute book is a pretty complicated and deeply interwoven place, um, potentially beyond, in some sense, our ability to be able to curate it and manage it as a large and complex system. Um, So big data potentially has an important role in a world where you can uh, measure or understand Um, the use of the word water by a four-year-old in a house. What about legally significant words? What about legally significant words in terms of of the statute book? Which brings me on to the project that um, I'm very fortunate to be leading and we're very fortunate to be able to run in in my team, which is a research project um, entitled Big Data for Law. Now, not coming from a legal research background, um, I've been very struck by how legal research has been done. And this is um, one of the partner organisations for our research project. This is the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies in London. Um, And if you remember that slide of, you know, the old world of sources of law being in books, that's where these guys are. Um, So legal researchers, it turns out, tend not to think in computational terms. They tend to want to answer legal research questions in the same way that lawyers answer many questions, which is in particular. But thinking about what the statute book as a system as a whole looks like and how you manage it or create it, where there are patterns, what's its shape, um, that's next to impossible to do if your resources look like this, books in the library, um, just next to impossible to do. So the ambition we have is to, to try and create some new instruments for legal research. And it's always been the case in um, the history of science that when you make new instruments, you get new insights. You see new things. Um, so this is, this is also a little indulgence for me because I saw these two pictures and this picture and the next one are both from NASA and I love them. Um, and it's like a kind of little frustrated, oh, why can't I get to work on something like that? So that's the Hubble telescope. Um, and it's one of the most amazing new instruments that, we, that humanity has ever created And it allows us to see things like this. This is a cloud nebula photographed in infrared. And there are um, those bright spots of stars being born. Um, A new instrument that gives us an insight that we never had before into um, a system that's large and complex and adaptive and evolving. So what are the instruments that will allow us to understand and better work with and process and manage our system of statute law? What's the equivalent of our Hubble telescope? And what's our equivalent of 
well, there probably isn't anything in the statute book that's that beautiful. And I'm looking at people who work with legislation every day, and I suspect they're, I mean, it's a long shot, right? <laughs> we probably would have spotted it. Anyhow, um, uh, what's our equivalent of being able to stand back far enough and see something deep and profound? So that's the ambition for um, the research project that we're leading. Being, we've been funded um, in significant part by the Arts and Humanities Research Council to construct a new instrument for legal research. And the National Archives is very fortunate to be an independent research organisation as well as being a government department. It leaves us really ideally placed to be able to um, bring together people and organisations that wouldn't normally work together. And for the research project, we have um, both partners from the private sector, so companies like LexisNexis, um, from the third sector, so people like the Incorporated Council of Law Reporting, who produce the law reports for all of the higher courts, and crucially have the data set where words and phrases in legislation have been interpreted by the courts. And also to work with um, our colleagues um, elsewhere in government, in particular with the Office of the Parliamentary Council, so the team of elite government lawyers who draft all government bills. So we're really uniquely placed, um, partly in government and partly as a research organisation, to bring together this kind of collaboration and to put in place some of the new instrumentation that can advance legal research. Um, and that, in a sense, is our big idea. Um, what happens when you start thinking about the statute book as a whole? What happens when you start thinking about the statute book as data? What happens when you start introducing a new capability that makes it easy for people to download the statute book and to run their own experiments? Um, what happens when um, you provide the right theoretical framework for thinking about the system of statute law that we have as an adapting and evolving system? So we're creating this thing at the moment um, at research.legislation.gov.uk. Um, of course, we're very proud of trying to design services that meet people's needs. So we're going away and understanding the needs of researchers in arts and humanities. Um, and that's proven very interesting. I was saying earlier about the dearth of empirical evidence that's used in legal research... Um, very much the, the end users of the capability of the tool we're putting in place look like they're going to fall into two types of people. Some people who would be very competent and capable to be able to access and download and process very large amounts of data. And other people who are going to need something that's very packaged and very polished um, in terms of what kind of analysis has been done um, and why just in terms of them not having not only the IT capability, but actually the statistical knowledge to be able to um, do anything more sophisticated with data. So anyway, we're going to do a lot about understanding the needs of researchers in arts and humanities around this new kind of capability. We're going to find ways of taking some of the closed data that we have, not least I was talking earlier about the volume of use and the number of users we have of Legislation Gov UK, um, so that creates a huge amount of usage data, information about um, people who visit statute X also visit statute Y, or people who visit section X also visit regulation Y. Um, is there some kind of new topology there? 
um, not based on um, the connection of different pieces of legislation based on their subject or based on the power or based on these terms are defined here and have been used over there, um, but a topology of the statute but based on its usage um, and how might it help us to see and understand that. And by making some of our usage data, finding ways in which we can make that available to the research community can really help. Um, And finally, coming up with a a different way of thinking about the architecture of the statute book that maybe will give us a better chance of starting to map um, what's going on. So not just a new instrument, um, not just data, not just tools, um, but understanding who's going to use those tools, finding ways of making new material available, and coming up with some um, new ways of thinking about Um, how the statute book as a system works. A big observation here is, if you look at other spheres, the power of abstraction. Um, When you create an abstract representation of something, you can start to understand it and work with it in a different way. And we have seen this in, um, in other realms, in other spheres. So there was a time where we only understood topological space in terms of our direct personal experience of it you went walking and then people saying ah but i could create an abstract representation of that space and i can draw a map now the statute book is in the same place as the pre-map era right if you want to go around and explore it you read it you read it How does it fit together? Well, maybe you can go and visit Hallsbury Statutes and it'd be organised by subject. Um, So you've got some road signs, but essentially you're left with reading it. You can't step back and see what the pattern and shape is of the thing as a whole. But even when you look at early maps, you realise that in a sense they're kind of naive. The language of the abstraction um, is not terrifically sophisticated you know people are like well we don't know we don't have symbols we're just going to draw little pictures of how we see the buildings as being and then you end up with which is a huge contrast um maps that are far more abstract and far more useful um now what's the equivalent abstraction for concepts contained in laws what does that look like And in order to process and manage the statute book as data, um, what are the ideas that are going to provide the props that will allow you to compute over that system and produce representations that are meaningful, useful, um, when people have been very familiar with living in a world like this? So there are two things that we've, we've been thinking about this really carefully Um, that we're going to try and do and one is this idea of in a way it's not it's not that clever Um, what happens if we just start counting stuff in the statute book just counting how many words are there how many of those words are verbs how many words typically are there in provisions and how's that changed over time Um, how many internal references are there in a piece of legislation and what's the distribution of internal and external references and what does that tell you about the modularity of the statute book Um, how often 
is legislation amended? And what does that tell you about whether or not pieces of legislation are wearing out, whether they're good or bad? Um, what happens when we change our political leaders and we have different parties in Parliament? Um, do pieces of legislation passed by Labour governments get disproportionately repealed by Conservative governments? I don't think anybody knows. No one has been able to count any of these things. Um, so not only will we be making available some data for people to experiment with, we're going to conduct a census, if you like, of the statute book. So identify indices, things that we can count for the first time. Um, some of those things um, will give us insights into how the system as a whole is evolving and adapting. Some will give us insights into um, the nature and form of language that's being used. Some will tell us quite a lot about the relationship between um, form of legislation and how the law has been constructed as you go through those big changes of format shift um, from scrolls of vellum through print through the introduction essentially to support print workflows of word processing technology um, and um, what may be coming with um, the web that we see today. So we're going to count lots of things. Counting things always gives you great insights. Um, there's a particular data set called n-grams, which are words and their frequency of occurrence. Um, and you can try n-grams out for yourself if you go to um, Google n-gram service then you can um, do a search for different words and phrases and they'll give you kind of frequency of occurrence of those words and phrases from their um, digitized collection of books so we can certainly do um, a kind of calculation of n-grams for the statute book but we're going to also need some new ways of thinking about some of these things and um, this is the second bit if you like so we have data tools <laughs> and methods. We have users, who, some of whom are very good with working with data, some of whom are not very good with working with data. And for those who are not very good with data, we're going to conduct, if you like, a census um, so that with a bundle of indices that are prepackaged so that they can start to use empirical evidence in their research, um, and it will give us some new insights. But if we're trying to uh, tackle this system and understand how, it's, how it works, can we come up with um, better ways of abstracting it so that we can see beyond acts and statutory instruments and enabling powers and provisions, that we can see how law is being designed um, and maybe we can help um, the designers of legislation make better law. Um, I did a short talk last week at the Heads of Analysis um, and someone came up to me, I was talking a bit about this concept of a pattern language for legislation, um, and gave the most brilliant analogy that I wish I'd thought of, um, which is, um, he said, have you ever seen that work by, I think, a Swedish academic, um, who came up with the notion that there are essentially 13 stories in all novels? You know, it's like, it's like the quest story or the whatever it might be. Um, but there's basically, you can distill all novels down to essentially 13 stories. So, in my mind, each one of those stories you could imagine as being a pattern, right? And the set of 13 would be your pattern language. So, what are the 13 essential laws 
um, from which all laws subsequently derive is the that's the idea so um, a little bit of uh, you say well this is nonsense on stilts well maybe not um, the architects um, dreamt some of this up a guy called Christopher Alexander came up with a pattern language for architecture in the late 1970s and then um, uh, my crowd the software engineers um, really borrowed those ideas for helping us understand how we manage our large, complex adaptive systems, um, our large, complex, often legacy software systems, by having an appropriate level of abstraction that would allow us to understand where those systems were working well and where they were working badly and what looked like good design. So, concretely, um, a pattern language consists of design patterns. A design pattern is the description of a problem and a core solution to that problem with both the problem and the solution kind of reoccurring in many different places. So it's like a generalised problem to which there is a generalised solution. And the value of it is that you can use a solution in a number of different contexts. Um, When you're looking at your system, you can think about what problems components of your parts of your system are solving and whether or not the solutions that you have in those areas um, are um, are good or bad or indifferent to the context of use what do they what do they consist of concretely well a name is a big thing right? so when someone says ah oh, there's a quest pattern in literature you immediately is oh, i think i know what that would be doing um, so um, naming patterns um, is really important in terms of uh, keying into um, what they are and what they might be about. Describing the problem that they solve, describing the, describing the solution, describing the consequences of using the pattern. Um, do such things exist? Um, well, when you think about the sorts of problems that legislation solves, it does a big piece of figuring out who decides the whatever it might be. So um, if I want to put a conservatory on the back of my house, the legislation won't say, yes, you can or no, you can't. But it will say your local authority gets to decide and here's the process you have to go through and here's the sets of decision. Here are the things they have to consider in making that decision. So what most legislation does is set up like decision-making mechanisms. Um, So when we're talking about patterns for legislation, we're talking about patterns of decision-making and there are a number of things you can ask yourself, you know. So um, uh, how much flexibility is a decision-making, decision-maker given? Um, are they left to kind of decide whether or not to let your um, planning application go through on the nod? Or do they have to, take some, do they have to go through a particular process? So let's do a little recap. You can think about legislation as data. We can make available a new capability and we need to think about, in order to process and manage the statute book, we need some new concepts, some new ideas about how the system as a whole is working. One of those is the idea of a pattern language. The patterns are patterns of decision-making. That's what most legislation is doing. It's setting up decision-making systems. So we're looking for patterns of decision-making. What about an example? So an example would be um, 
in regulation. The problem is um, you have, it's called polycentric decision making, where, um, so thinking about water, gas, electricity, you have the needs of an industry on one side, um, you have the need of society for people in that industry to invest, and you have the needs of consumers to have, not basically not be ripped off. Um, how do you frame a, a solution in law to protecting the interests of consumers on one side whilst allowing investors to have a reasonable return on investment on the other um, and remembering that the courts are not particularly good at these sort of subtle balancing problems. They're, they're much better at you win, you lose. Um, you're innocent, you're guilty. Um, so the pattern for solving this type of problem in legislation, what you could call a regulator pattern, is that you establish a regulator. And the regulator decides, they issue a license that um, if you want to supply electricity or telephony um, or gas, you need to get a license. If you try and do that activity and you don't have a license and you get in trouble, um, in the license are a bundle of conditions that the regulator can determine, and they have the power to determine what the conditions are and evolve that over time. So you make them quite powerful. Um, the licence can be modified on an ongoing basis as the world changed by consent of the parties. Um, and you have only a limited right of appeal back to the courts. But essentially everything is hanging off the regulator who can issue a licence to allow you to do a particular type of activity. Now, that as a pattern of things hanging off a light is quite common in legislation, quite often that um, you set up a system where you have a decision maker who can issue a license, and in order to do an activity, you need to get a license from the decision maker. Um, it's maybe one of our 13 essential laws or 15 essential laws. Um, finding out will give us a way of thinking about the statute book as a system as a whole rather than a set of isolated individual acts and statutory instruments. Um, it will give us an insight that we've not had before. Combined with um, the facilities that we have with data, with our ability to be able to count and measure and process, combined with our capacity to enable, not just to do this activity for ourselves, but to enable other people to do this type of activity, um, we have within, not just in the grasps of the work that we're doing in the National Archives, but um, for the nation, if you like, um, the chance to um, begin to manage this large, complex, adaptive system that is our law um, in a way that is a little bit more contemporary. Um, you go back to that earlier piece where um, the relationship between the function of law and its form, when you start to be able to process and manage a system of law as a whole and when you start having the, the abstract ideas, if you like, the equivalent of the maps that allow you to see what the patterns are that are happening, then this can both benefit users, consumers, because the minute that you know that a piece of legislation... Um, is following this regulator pattern, suddenly you've got real clues into what's going on. Um, you kind of like, ah, oh, I understand what's happening. So it's useful for users, but it's also very useful for policymakers. Um, 
so yeah and a big part of it is about trying to find ways of abstracting what's difficult in order to make it explicable and by stepping a level up from words and phrases into thinking about the design of our system of law and using the computing power that we have to be able to um, deduce that, find those patterns, know where they exist and understand how they're evolving and adapting over time. So it's quite insane. It's quite insane. Anyway, um, the Arts and Humanities Research Council um, have given us a, a reasonable slug of money to go away and make said thing. Um, we are having a crack at uh, both the infrastructure building and doing some of the thinking um, that will allow us to really um, exploit and use the potential of um, the kind of big data technology, the kinds of information that we have, the kind of partnership we can build to um, help not just to deliver a better end user experience, but maybe give everyone a better understanding and insight into how our system of law itself is evolving and adapting. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.